I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Uh, so, what do you know about uh, the passenger pigeon? Um, there, there was a lot of them. <laughs> they would darken the skies. And now there are none. Exactly. The roar of their wings on arriving and departing from the roost is tremendous. And the flocks, during the flight, darken the heavens. So the passenger pigeon was incredibly abundant. Uh, the best guess at their population based on descriptions that Europeans gave of their flocks is that they were in the billions. The ground is covered from the depth of several inches with their manure. A flock would land, then move, like a tide eating acorns. Then another bunch would land ahead of them, and the flocks would leapfrog until they ate every acorn and beech nut on the forest floor. And not only were there a lot of them, but the, the, the defining trait of the passenger pigeon was that they lived in these huge flocks. So some folks think that there were maybe only ever five flocks at a time. So we're talking about maybe a billion birds per flock. That is a lot. There's so many in a flock that you never see an end to it. There were so many that the the Archbishop of Quebec excommunicated the passenger pigeon as a pest, as a plague. He excommunicated it? I don't think you can do that. It's not clear how effective this was. From the church? Thousands of pigeons are killed by casualties from breaking limbs of trees. Did they look like normal pigeons? I mean, they look like a pigeon, right? So individually, I mean, they were they were pretty. They have like a skinny version of your standard rock pigeon. They had this like nice reddish blush on their chest and, and like a longer, more delicate tail. Uh, but you really can't separate the passenger pigeon out from their numbers. There were, there were just so many of them that they kind of felt like a force of nature. 
descriptions of forests that they left behind said that they would break limbs off of trees and open up the canopy and that their poo would literally smother plant life on the forest floor. Oh my God. So it was like a, it was like a fire coming through when they came to town. When they jink and the sun strikes their feathers just right, they sparkle like a big river flowing in the sky. And the fact that by 1914, we had wiped them all out, just 200 years or less after these descriptions, I mean, it's a pretty powerful narrative. And I think that it is the thing that Americans think of when we talk about the destructive capacity of the human race. I think the first thing they think of is the passenger pigeon, because it's such a symbol of, um, you know, human greed, cupidity, and carelessness. That uh, is Charles Mann. You got to talk to the 1491 guy? <laughs> Did you read it? Uh, no, but I know about it. This is, like, <laughs> this is the thing. It's like a famous book. It's like a Guns, Germs, and Steel or something. Okay, well, I, I don't know Jack about it, so explain it to me. Well, so it was a best-selling book. It's about, uh, you know, what the Americas looked like before the arrival of Europeans, but tucked away in this archaeological tome, there's one small section. The relatively brief discussion in the book about the passenger pigeon. Yeah, incredibly brief, uh, one might say. Yeah, in a paragraph. <laughs> and in that very short section, he suggested something that I would say is, is downright heretical. Uh, he wrote about a paper written in the 1980s by an archaeologist named Thomas Newman. Remember that name, Newman. 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 <laughs> yeah, that, that helps. And he hypothesized um, something that really struck me, which is that the destruction of native societies, um, you know, with the arrival of Europeans, had lifted the lid off of passenger pigeons. And what we were seeing was an outbreak population. It was a, a crazy thing that happened, sort of a weird ecological byproduct of the genocide against Native Americans. And when I read it, you know, I thought, as I often do when I read very short, very interesting things that aren't really expanded upon in books, oh, like that would make a great outside-in episode. Uh, but as I got farther into the story, there were people who were refusing to be interviewed. How dare you say that? One even told me that even to look into this question was journalistically irresponsible. What? Give me a break. There's new evidence. I didn't know about it. Uh, because I couldn't have, because I'm not a time traveler. So that's when I decided that there is a whole different story here, which is, why is the population of an extinct bird so controversial? What are birds? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there a, a whole thing about how birds aren't real? Yeah, I don't even think they are real. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's so controversial. They're spies. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and I'm here with Justine Paradise. Oh, yes. And Taylor Quimby. Hey. The passenger pigeon is arguably North America's most notorious extinction story. It's a cautionary tale about how humanity can, with incredible speed, destroy even the most astonishing wonders of the world. But is this cautionary tale fact or fiction? How many passenger pigeons were there before Europeans arrived in North America? And why is this such a sensitive question? So the, the paragraph that led to this whole kerfuffle had its origins in a place called Cahokia. Um, have you ever heard of Cahokia? No. Mm. 
Cahokia was a city uh, before Europeans arrived in North America, right across the Mississippi River from where St. Louis is today. That it existed from, you know, very, very roughly speaking, you know, 400 A.D. to about uh, 1400 A.D. Most guesses say that there were like 20, 25,000 people living there. I mean, Cahokia was until about 1800 the largest uh, uh, city north of the Rio Grande. Some archaeologists think there mi- it might have been as many as 40,000, which would have been bigger than London was at the time. Wow. Right. And so a city that size, just like cities today, would, would have required a lot of food. And one of the things that archaeologists can look at to determine uh, what's being eaten is they can sort through bone piles, which are called middens. So, you know, they look at the bones and what they have, and they, what they didn't find was passenger pigeon bones. It gets more complicated than that, but that's the basic insight, is that there's remarkably few passenger pigeon bones throughout these societies in which are very well-organized, you know, food procurement systems. Well, and also, isn't it the case that when we read colonial accounts of pasture pigeons, they were just sort of famously dumb? Yeah, they're easy. (laughs) Right, exactly. There's this amazing account of the Seneca um, just simply knocking them off the the branches of trees and catching them in baskets and then, you know, boiling uh, (laughs) boiling them up into uh, pigeon stew. They're basically meat fruit. Yeah, they're meat fruit. And, um, well, they're pigeons, right? These are not the brightest birds. So, an archaeological mystery. Where were the pigeon bones? And this is where Charles stumbles across Thomas Newman, Newman. the archaeologist who argued that these huge flocks were... Sort of a weird ecological byproduct of the genocide against Native Americans. And that was the story that Charles told in in like a couple paragraphs of his book. Can we can we review the idea really quick? So be, because of the the genocide of the Native Americans that opened up like an ecological niche for the passenger pigeon to explode and 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 how did that happen? Right. So passenger pigeons, they ate nuts. So a, a big thing they ate are beech nuts, acorns, and these are all crops that Native American people also eat. But but more to the point, you know, when you have millions of Native people die, you have all these fields that are suddenly fallow, not being tended to and not being protected. And so not only are there fewer people eating these nuts that the birds also relied on, but suddenly there's this huge swath of agricultural land that they can just forage in. And so the population booms. And so like the very presence of these huge flocks is instead of being like you know, a symbol of the abundance of the new world gets recast and and reinterpreted as like another symbol of the horrors that Europeans visited upon Native people. God. And what really happened was uh, that a bunch of ornithologists found out sort of the through the odd mechanism of this journalistic book that a whole bunch of archaeologists didn't think that there were that many um, passenger pigeons. And they went, what? And so all of a sudden... Uh, I got, you know, a small number of um, irate letters. Which, according to Charles, didn't really poke holes in the hypothesis per se. They were just kind of mad that he had written about this thing. How dare you say that? And it may be that these letters didn't have much substance to them. I, I don't really know. I didn't read them. But as I dug into the critique of 1491, what I what I found is that it it was really pointing out some fundamental problems with archaeology in general. Like what? Hello, 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 hello. Hello, hello. I hear my own voice. I hear my own voice. Coming back to me like before. Me like before. Well, uh, to sort through it all, let me introduce you to an archaeologist named Craig Madrigal, who got his PhD researching passenger pigeon remains. 
Uh, in <laughs> Doctorates are so weird <laughs> in New York State. <laughs> Hoping to talk to Craig Madrigal about passenger pigeons. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. And what he told me is that Newman was writing about this in the 80s. And, and like, frankly, even though people have been doing excavations for centuries, we were kind of dumb about the ways we went about it. When they dug then, they used shovels and trowels not looking really closely at the soil. So nobody was doing things like, say, screening the soil through a very fine mesh, looking for the, like the rib of a passenger pigeon. But later, eventually, if, like through the 90s and into modern day, we have been getting smarter. Well, Newman wrote the paper, I think, in 1985. So, so he found about 20 sites with passenger pigeon bones. Another researcher who looked at this question in like the mid-aughts found more like 65 sites. I started in the 90s, actually, and now I have a list of something like 366 archaeological sites from the Holocene, so from the last like 10,000 years, with passenger pigeon bones. So we're up to, there's at least 400 passenger pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so in some of those sites, the passenger pigeon bones are actually like really numerous. Like he says that, that, you know, you'd see the turkey bones and the things, you know, other types of birds that Native American people were eating. But the passenger pigeon would be the n- most numerous bird bone that you'd find at some of those sites. Okay. So this, this supports maybe the idea that they really were that numerous all the time. Well... Maybe. At at the very least, it suggests that this idea that Newman was starting from, that we don't find many passenger pigeon bones in the archaeological record, at the very least, that idea needs some updating. Yeah. Okay. So do you think, do you think, I mean, Newman was wrong? Well, to some extent, they're all kind of right. Yeah. But some of them might be a bit wrong, too. So what Craig told me is that what you get from the archaeological record is really just like a general story. And just the fact that you are talking about thousands of years, you know things are going to change. And that story is that, you know, during the Ice Ages, passenger pigeons were around. People were eating them. In the Pleistocene, passenger pigeons probably were relatively small population. There's no really big accumulations. But when the last Ice Age ended, the population probably began to expand. And we actually do see a few signs that they moved north pretty quickly. Following the ice. And according to Craig, it probably, you know, maybe around 4,000 or 6,000 years ago, you had forests that are kind of like the forests we have today that could have supported these big passenger pigeon flocks, the oak and beech forests that dominate the Northeast and the Great Lakes right now. Which again is around 4,500 years ago. That's when we kind of get a modern environment. I kind of suspect that the really large flocks started happening around then. But my big takeaway from this conversation was that if we're hoping that the archaeological record is going to definitively refute or even support this hypothesis, well, okay, here's what Craig said. In terms of, like, if, if I wanted to say, like, tell me a number, like, tell me how many passenger pigeons there were, can archaeology do that for us? I would, again, kind of avoid the question by saying, <laughs> to me, the most important question is not were there 5 billion or were there 4 billion or were there only 500 million? Yeah. We know there were a lot. We know it changed over time. Archaeology can tell us some things, but if we're looking at it to try to get a population estimate, it's probably the wrong tool. This reminds me of like how fossils, you know, you only find them under certain ecological conditions. So like it's like 
a snapshot of yes. what existed in a wetland and there's a, a desert nearby and you just have no idea. Yeah. True of, of archaeology, too. Bones, like animal remains, are only preserved in non-acidic soil, which excludes, like, most of the eastern seaboard. And yet we use these remains to try and, like, paint a picture about what the whole world was like at a certain time or era. But and... what's what's interesting to me is that even so, the ornithologists who were upset about the passenger pigeon section in 1491 still were citing archaeology. Uh, so Joel Greenberg, the he's the author of a book called A Feathered River Across the Sky, uh, also the curator of a large museum exhibit about the passenger pigeon. He wrote this blog post saying that the Newman hypothesis, he said that that had, quote, been definitively refuted by, and he cites, another work of archaeology. And I read that paper, and it doesn't really refute the Newman hypothesis. It's actually like a different argument that says that the boom came earlier, like a thousand years ago, when Native Americans started cultivating maize. And when I reached out to the author, he's retired. He didn't want to be interviewed, but he emailed me back and said, quote, Newman wasn't wrong. You, re- you really need like a, a person to translate the shade in the archaeology community. <laughs> yeah. Throw down. Newman wasn't wrong. The thing that's funny to me about it is you have someone citing a, a scientist and the scientist is like, no, that's, that's not what I said. Yeah. So I want to talk to Joel Greenberg about this, about like the mischaracterization that he had made, but also more generally, like, why are you so worked up about this? And after swapping a couple of emails and after a long phone conversation where I was describing to him what the story we were working on was, he declined to talk to me. And in an email, he called even bringing up this excerpt from 1491, the Newman hypothesis, Trumpian. (gasps) He called you fake news? When did politics... I don't feel like that was a part of this at all. (laughs) I... I found it baffling because I was I was telling him, like, essentially, I want to fact check a claim that was made in a really high profile book. And and, you know, so it was just like, why? So I think his refusal tells us something a lot more interesting than determining whether the passenger pigeon was just really numerous or really, really numerous. We're, we're just we're just debating the number of reallys. That's in my opinion. <laughs> <it's what we're laughs> uh. That's what we'll talk about after a break. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Can we briefly talk about what we do know about the passenger pigeon, like for sure? You're talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) What, are we on a show? (laughs) Well, for starters, we can say for sure that by the 1600s to the 1800s at least, they were incredibly numerous. There were definitely a lot. This is Jamie Jacobs. He works at the Rochester Museum of Science. He's a member of the Tonawanda Seneca people. Just, you know, coming from the culture... And then seeing just this little bit of evidence, um, I, you know, you, you can kind of put two and two together. Who live in the middle of what we think was the passenger pigeon's historical breeding territory. And he says that oral history is pretty clear that the arrival of the pigeon flock in the spring was like a big deal. And the whole village would clear out um, and they would go and, you know, find where these passenger pigeons were roosting after their long track back from the south. The, the birds would land and breed in late winter, so like end of March, beginning of April, which is sometimes called the Hungry Gap? Uh, yeah, so we do have a word in Seneca for the passenger pigeon, pronounced Jakowa. So if I linguistically break this down, uh, what it really means literally is a large piece of bread. This time period, at the end of winter, it's like all the food you've saved up for the winter is running low, and nothing's really growing yet because it's too early in the spring. So so the pigeon came at this incredibly important time. They were a very important food source. This was kind of like a fresh meal after a few months of, you know, living off, you know, stored and dried foods. And, and the baby pigeons were just like a little butterball. They fattened up incredibly quickly. Uh, some accounts say that in one or two weeks, they would weigh more than the adults. Wow. So today in our culture, we actually, it's, it's, it's actually tied in with the maple season. But we have a dance that we call the pigeon dance. And, and it's the first dance that we dance at this, uh, this maple celebration. What we call Jakowa Oino, which just literally means the pigeon song. So we know that societies throughout the Northeast, the Great Lakes, and like up into Canada relied on the birds for this skinny part of the year. You know, that was a call for, you know, a celebration that, yeah, we made it. And we have this bird to thank, and we're going to thank the Great Spirit that we saw the bird come again. But there's a limit to what we can learn from eyewitness accounts. And, And just as a for instance, explorer Jacques Cartier, who was one of the first Europeans to write about coming to North America, when he was sailing along the coast of Prince Edward Island in 1534, he wrote that they saw, quote, an infinite number of wood pigeons. Sounds scientific and accurate to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like, what does that tell us? Like, even the most authoritative population estimate we have, that three to five billion bird number, that comes from reading eyewitness accounts of how long a flock would take to pass overhead and just, like, doing math. Like, you know, river of birds traveling at X rate for X number of birds per meter. And, and like, you know, other things like stories of hunters killing 50,000 pigeons in a day. Like, at its core, that's still a really rough estimate. And, and even today, animals are hard to count. So a flock with a billion birds in it, like, sure, that would seem infinite. But, but so, too, maybe would a flock with 100 million birds in it. So ultimately, I think the fact that our collective memory is really at best like a few hundred years old makes it hard to say anything with much precision about the population size of creatures that that go back thousands and tens of thousands of years. But there is one line of evidence that recently we've begun to turn to that really was just in its infancy when Charles Mann wrote 1491, and that's genetics. 
So back in 2014, Gemma Murray, who's a researcher who studies ancient DNA, was trying to answer a question. And to do it, she was collecting passenger pigeon DNA. This is museum samples um, where the birds have been stuffed and preserved. And and I read you you sort of like shaved a, a, a few skin cells off like the bottoms of the feet of these museum birds. Yeah, that, that wasn't me personally. That was all done before I um, got involved in the project. <laughs> right. Um, but yes. There's this idea called a, a genetic bottleneck. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I think as far as a genetic bottleneck, the biggest example that I know of is the cheetah, um, which are the, the cheetah population is super inbred because they went through these big die off events. Like one was at the end of the last ice age, like 10,000 years ago. Mm. Um, their population like fell really suddenly. So they, they had a big population and a sudden die off and then a way smaller one. So and you can see that the, the cheetah's uh, gene pool is super homogenous, um, which can lead to all kinds of problems like weak immune systems or weird mutations and stuff. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. So these, it's like a moment in a species history where a ton of genetic diversity is lost because they're having to rebuild from a very small number of species. And so it's such a profound event that it shows up in your genetic code. Now, a previous study looking at the passenger pigeon had found what looked like a genetic bottleneck. What they'd found was um, that the genetic diversity across the passenger pigeon genome was surprisingly low given their population size. How much was it off by, you know, if we if we thought there was a population of billions, what would you have expected that math to have come out as versus what did it come out as? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm nervous about saying exact numbers here, but I think um, I think it's sort of on the order of like, um, you know, um, three orders of magnitude out. So like a thousand times less, something like that. But Gemma and her team found something that they thought was even more interesting an incredibly rare genetic fingerprint. Ah. I I look forward to not understanding this. (laughs) Let's just imagine that a single passenger pigeon suddenly developed a random, really beneficial mutation, right? Suddenly it's like shooting lightning at every predator that attacks it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. And so obviously that would be a big advantage. They'd have a lot of children. (laughs) And that, that mutation would then spread through the population really, really rapidly. Now, Every time two animals make a baby, it's kind of like taking two decks of cards and shuffling them into one deck, so all the cards get mixed up. But it's not like a completely random new order. Some of the cards that were next to each other in the old deck are still next to each other in the new one. Like if you've ever played War and you see all of these patterns that come up every time. And so with our lightning pigeon, obviously, because it's not getting eaten uh, and it's spawning lots of new lightning birds, that's going to be the case, that every new lightning pigeon that gets born is going to have that lightning gene. But it also gets a big chunk of chunk of DNA around it because, you know, it's just your, your DNA gets passed down in chunks, not an individual basis. And the longer it takes for a mutation to spread through a population, the more that, that like, chonkiness goes away. <laughs> and so when you see those chunks, it's like a signature. It tells you that adaptations are spreading very quickly through a population. Another geneticist who is not involved in either pigeon team, uh, her name is Jennifer Leonard, and she's at the Estación Biológica de Doñana in Spain. She explained this to me. Well, there's not a lot of examples where you can see this, but the theory is is very well developed. And this chunky fingerprint is really quite rare. It's predicted by genetic theory, but outside of, say, like viruses and bacteria, we almost never see it in real life. Has, has it been observed anywhere else? You said there that we don't have many examples, but it sounds like there are some. Yeah, the... Um... The herring, 
you know the the fish i do know the herring (laughs) and it was that signature that Gemma's team had detected so while there wasn't much genetic diversity it looks like the reason for this was because there are actually tons of pigeons that were flocking all together and the natural selection was very efficient meaning beneficial mutations could spread through the whole population very fast when we took um, estimates from the mitochondrial genome, we saw evidence the passenger pigeons had a population size of at least 13 million um, for the last 20,000 years, and that was a pretty stable population. Wait, did she just say 13 million? <laughs> it's like we've been talking about f- 5 billion birds. 13 million is not an impressive number. <laughs> yeah, okay, so get ready to be disappointed because it seems like genetics also can't really tell us how many birds there were. Genetics can come up with something called an effective breeding population, which is like the number of individuals that can like find each other and nuzzle with each other and make a bird baby together. And and understanding the relationship between actual population size and, and effective population size is really complicated. But So I want you to focus on the second thing that she said. Um, for the last 20,000 years, and that was a pretty stable population um, over that period. So if the bird's population had increased dramatically you would expect to see that in their genes after just like a couple hundred years. So so if there were a boom, it would have had to have been very short-lived because we see zero evidence of it in their genes. Uh, I'm bewildered. Yeah, help, help me understand this. Are, are, we, are we thinking that Newman was wrong here? Like there wasn't a dramatic boom in the number of birds. Where I have landed, I would say it like this. The evidence supporting the Newman hypothesis was pretty thin at the time that he wrote it. You know, archaeology is not an exact science in this regard. And the more we learn, the thinner it's getting. And I think, like, to Charles Mann's credit, I feel like he is open to reevaluating his understanding of this whole topic. Like, for one, he says that a lot of this evidence has come out after his book. Uh, and that by his own admission, he didn't really work super hard to uncover every stone to try to vet this claim. And here, I think I should be faulted. I didn't realize that people would be so arrested by it. I thought it was, wow, this is really interesting. Had I realized that I probably would have, you know, given it uh, a super hard look and, uh, you know, tried to bolster it or, or, or but it, as it was, it was really just a couple of paragraphs, if that, or maybe even just a paragraph. Here's what I think is that this is really about narratives. Uh, the narrative of the passenger pigeon is really useful. Useful as a, as a story, um, as a conservation story. And uh, what they feared, I believe, um, is that, you know, by me saying this, uh, that it somehow lets, you know, humankind off the hook and um, conservation, you know, somehow is, is called into question. I really don't believe this to be so, but I think that's uh, sort of the rationale. So for the for the conservation movement, this story that there was there were five billion birds and, you know, they were so numerous that at one point there were like one in every four birds in all of North America. It's a rallying cry for the types of things that conservationists want to do, like protect species, set land aside for nature, and even, you know, use genetic engineering to bring back the passenger pigeon. But that narrative recently has come under assault from another narrative championed by people like Charles Mann. But there's a second thing that goes along with it, and it's this kind of vision of an Edenic nature. You know, that the the uh, Americas were like a, a Garden of Eden, untouched nature, um, until Europeans came along and wrecked everything. 
Uh, and that's a really important um, sort of sub-narrative, if that's a word, uh, in, you know, to environmental movement. And, you know, not intentionally, but it's sort of weirdly racist. Um, and, and by that, I mean that it suggests that these native peoples, these indigenous peoples who were here for thousands and thousands of years didn't do anything. They didn't change anything. They didn't make anything. They existed in what the historian Eric Wolf called in the state of being people without history. Uh, I, I, there's something off about that. And, um, I, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because, you know, it's something that I was taught as a kid and I believed. And it wasn't until Native people started saying, hey, you know, we have a history. We do stuff. We're people. Um, that I, I, I realized the, I think, mostly unintentional um, implications of that. So this alternate narrative, the one being advanced by Newman and seized on by Charles Mann, is seeking to correct this long-standing bias in archaeology and in the environmental movement. And I think it's because it's just a striking example of a way in which something that you took as a given, that the passenger pigeon was this wonder of, wonder of the world that we annihilated, is actually just another way that Native people have been erased from history. And so, like... That's what this is. This tempest in a teacup is sort of this like proxy war over these two narratives. Yeah. But do we actually have an answer here? I mean, do we know how many passenger pigeons there were in, I don't know, uh, 1389? Yeah, before Europeans. I mean, I keep coming back to something that Craig Madrigal said, which was that this is really kind of the wrong question. I'm more interested in ecological relationships and um, how they were used by Native Americans, how they were used in historic times. But there is no doubt that they were super abundant in the 1800s. And there's no doubt in my mind their extinction was caused by the unregulated hunting for commercial purposes of them. You know, it just doesn't seem like these two narratives have to be in conflict with one another. Like, it can be the case that Native Americans had a profound influence on the passenger pigeon population and that it's a tragedy that North America's most numerous bird was hunted to extinction. Yeah, and Jamie Jacobs, who is telling us some of the oral history of the Seneca people, I think he agrees with Charles Mann's larger point about the erasure of Native people from history. Yes, I feel the same way, definitely, now that we discuss this <laughs> and bring forth, you know, ideas. <laughs> but, like, the Newman hypothesis... He just doesn't see any evidence of it. Uh, but again, like there, you know, there is, you know, this other side of the story. And just like, you know, like I said, we've we've had a long tradition of, you know, passenger pigeon, you know, in our culture, and we still have it. Um, you know, we still present it, and we still, you know, celebrate it. You know, you know, even today. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to think of because you, didn't you say that um, two hundred years was sort of what we what we could imagine this outbreak being given the genetic record that's that's that was sort of the final place we landed right yeah if it if it happened it would have had to have been something on the order of like two or three centuries because like that is like the entire length of the United States of America right <laughs> so the imagining like this if you use the word it's always been like this mm -hmm. like what 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 are things that make an American person American and I think maybe one of one of the things that um for me at least is this sort of shallowness of memory like always means, can only mean up to 200 years. Um, and I remember once um, I was in France um, in like a, like an old 
um, farmhouse. And we were saying, oh, we're from New England. Like, our houses are, they go back to the 1850s. And the guy just laughed at our face and was like, this building was built in the year 1500. Like, <laughs> please. It's actually funny because it's like when you think about the effort to bring the passenger pigeon back, in a way, that idea is something that comes from the first school of thought. Like, let's put nature back the way it was as, as far as Europeans remembered it. But at the same time, it's kind of accepting our role as gardeners. It's not let's just let nature run its course. It's it's let's change nature to be the way we want it to be. It's not bracketing nature to one side and humans to the other. It's accepting that we have this profound influence and it's up to us to choose what to do with that. That's not that's not the world I want. <laughs> <laughs> so you clean up a lot of guano. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. said the houses were just breaking. <laughs> this was terrible. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Eric Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of Circling the Rhetorical Wagons. Special thanks today to Ben Shapiro, Ed Jackson, and Nina Versaggi. If you can't get enough Outside In, remember, we have a newsletter. It comes out every other week, and it includes an answer to a bonus Ask Sam question that you do not hear on the podcast, as well as some links to articles that we think are fun or worthwhile. You can subscribe over at OutsideInRadio.org. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.